Good morning. I've talked about sexuality in a lot of different places, but I've never been able to give a talk on sexuality at a cabaret. <laughs> Pat Carnes would be jealous. I appreciate the chance to talk with you today about a topic of, of intimacy, a very personal meaning to each of us here, something that in one way or another has touched our lives. My hope today is that we can make a transition in the way that Vince talked about. Yesterday we used the microscope to look externally at addiction. We looked at its patterns of behavior. We looked at its neurobiochemistry. We, we looked and focused down to the point of looking at individual neurotransmitter molecules. Today, the program is set up to have us shift our perceptions and begin to look at addiction from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And so my request today is that you try to take that perspective and what I have to say and what the speakers that follow me have to say. If someone could turn on the slide projector for me. Uh, please. Just flip the little switch up there and uh, turn on the light. Probably the fan's on, but the light isn't. We have three doctors now performing surgery up here. <laughs> no wonder patients get nervous. Because we base much of our lives on the principles and the foundations of this program that for me and for many of you has been life-saving, I want to keep our talk focused on the big book. I don't know why it turned out that sex was discussed on page 69 of the big book. I've never been able to figure that out. But in case you've always wondered where to look, just remember 69, you won't have any problems, you won't get lost. Pages 68 to 70 give us a chance to focus on sexual themes and remind us that for the founders of AA, sex was a problem. Sex was something that needed to be addressed as part of our program of inventory and recovery. And as you look through this particular section, you'll see that there were controversies in dealing with sexuality at that time, 60 years ago, as there are now. It was so easy to get off track. There were so many extremes of opinion. In addition to the extremes of opinion that exist, there are extremes in action. And so today, we're going to try to explore part of that action. For many of us in recovery, we were trying to give up our drugs of choice. And for a while, many of us found ourselves caught in a struggle between acting in and acting out being good, depriving our wants and our needs and our desires, feeling fearful, getting real rigid in the way that we were going to do things, trying hard to do the next right thing, and feeling empty inside, and finding ourselves struggling against the tendency to act out with a collapse of boundaries and a release of some of that anxiety, a release of some of that anger. And therefore, we saw ourselves moving between extremes. 
and sometimes those extremes also involve dealing with sexual behavior. Now, for the vast, for, for the majority of us in early recovery from our chemical dependency, we found ourselves more on the left side of this diagram than the right side. In addition to extremes of opinion, there are extremes of behavior. Early in recovery from chemical dependency, the most common sexual problem is that of sexual dysfunction. If you look in the DSM-4, there are a whole list of sexual dysfunctions. But many of us found ourselves not functioning well or not desiring to function in, this, in the realms of sexuality and intimacy. As our recoveries began to progress, we began to look more and more at the world around us, and we might find ourselves moving into that area of normal sexual behavior. On the other hand, there's this dynamic. Being addicts, we tended to be intensity freaks in one way or another. We were always looking for the most, the best, the optimal. And it was difficult to keep things in balance. Our discussion this morning is going to be around the right side of this diagram, the area in which there are sexual excesses, the areas that some people call sexual addiction, the areas in which there are, there are problems with our sexual behavior because of the consequences and difficulties that it, that it brings to us. As Bill says, <clears throat> we don't want to be an arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. I don't have a right to judge someone's sexual preference. I don't have a right to judge people's sexual actions. I don't need to take someone's sexual inventory. But I do need to take my own inventory. I do need to review my own conduct. And I don't know about you and what your experience is, but in doing a four-step it's real easy to overlook doing a four-step on my sexual behavior and my personal relationships. It's real easy to see how people overlook in their first and fourth steps dealing with these issues. And particularly now when there's a certain stigma associated with being labeled as a sexual addict, people don't want to talk about their sexuality. And they don't want to explore what happened with whom under what circumstances because it might create more consequences for them more difficulties, more recovery tasks, and more struggles. But I think it's very important for us to look at the traditions on which we base our lives and recognize the fact that doing an inventory in this area has been recommended as part of the path in the beginning. And so that's the challenge. Can you get your sexual behavior, your struggles with intimacy down on paper and look at them? In doing so, when I'm working with others, I use this basic approach to it. Very often, sexual behavior has been tied to our use of drugs. Generally, this begins with reenactment of scenarios from the past in our minds that result in ritualistic behavior, and our bodies suddenly are, seem to be acting on their own. And uh, suddenly, we're our center of thought seems to shift from up here to somewhere down below the belt or some other place. But it's certainly not from the place of thinking about what's in our best interest or the best interest of someone else. Very often we use drugs with sexual activity 
to reenact scenarios that we've seen from books and from movies, from past experience. Or we imagine what we'd like to see. It's the essence of whining and dining. And we know what dessert's about. We've also used drugs to enhance sexual pleasure. It's like combining drugs to get a higher high. We've used it to treat our own sexual fears and dysfunctions so that we could be disinhibited. We've used it to, to treat our anxiety or our fear of being with someone. And finally here, we've used this as an, as an excuse. It's allowed us to act out sexually, sometimes to act out in a way that would be aggressive sexually. And then we say, well, I had too much to drink. It's because I, it's because of the demon rum. It's because of the cocaine. If I hadn't been using cocaine, I wouldn't have done this. And although we're in an altered state of consciousness when we're using a mood-altering substance, when we allow ourselves to use that as an excuse for behavior that hurts ourselves and others, we're shortchanging ourselves in some ways. We're not being completely honest. The other side of this is even more difficult for us to look at and more difficult for us to lead others to look at as we try to help people learn about the traditions and the value of this program. And that is how drugs are used on potential sexual partners. For a potential sexual partner, they too reenact scenarios from books, movies, and past experience. And for them also, there's a need to use in order to feel more comfortable. But when we give someone drugs, when we're being the drug dealer, we're increasing someone else's vulnerability. We're decreasing their inhibitions. This can be done consciously. It can be done unconsciously. It's often done unskillfully. We overcome resistance or objection. We use drugs to manipulate and control events. We find that the use of drugs promotes emotional numbness, promotes victimization, brings someone else into the point of feeling once again victimized, as they might have in the past. Needless to say, this distorts reality and memory, so that someone else with whom you've been sexual might have difficulty later on remembering how they ended up in that particular scenario with you. And we can laugh about it and say, boy, we had a wild night then, didn't we? Blaming it on the drugs. And finally, there's the age-old tradition of providing compensation for services. And drugs for sex, as you know, is very common. What is sexual addiction? <clears throat> Sexual addiction is a way that we can describe certain patterns of sexual behavior. I put up here on the board, and I realize that from the back it's difficult to read some of these slides. But the point here is that there is a pattern of behavior. This slide's taken from Pat Karn's book, Don't Call It Love. And what it really tells you is that there are certain types of behavior that can feel like addiction. It walks like addiction. It talks like addiction. It intuitively feels like addiction to you. There are other patterns of sexual behavior that do not feel like addiction. They feel like abuse of power and position in a way that is not addictive in nature. There is a need to discriminate. And as with many processes that have addictive features, not all the people that engage in that process 
fit with the addiction, addiction model that we know. And so we have to get away from being the lumpers and the splitters and realize that we have to fit what fits naturally into this process without trying to bring everything into it. So suffice it to say that there are signs and symptoms that feel like addiction to some of us and that we can explore those and we can read books and we can help people to deal with that. But also remember that sexual addiction is not a diagnosis. It's a description of a pattern of sexual behavior. In the addiction pattern, there are some familiar concepts that we know. Carnes describes them in this way. There's an initiation phase. There are certain critical events that happen that really form certain sexual attitudes and feelings that become the basis of that reenactment of scenarios. You can remember them in your own lives, that first kiss, that first person you were intimate with, that infidelity, the time you looked at pornography, the time that you watched someone else uh, act out in a way that was unacceptable to you, the time that you said no and felt good about yourself. They're all part of that. But somewhere along the line, there were certain behaviors for some of us that were initiative, just like our first drinks. We went from there into experience with certain types of sexual behaviors that be, for us became an end in of themselves. We developed a pathologic experience with a mood-altering behavior. We established a pattern. Sometimes it became ritualized. We escalated at times. We de-escalated at times. We thought we could control it. And we all know about control in this room. Sometimes we switched addictions. Sometimes we rationalized and minimized. And sometimes we found ourselves in the acute phase or in a crisis phase. We found consequences. We experienced consequences or we saw consequences played out in the lives of others. We felt some guilt. We felt some shame. Sometimes we felt remorse. But we found ourselves caught up with a process that was more powerful than we were. This is a list of some of the physical manifestations that you can see with addictive sexual disorders. One of those is the abuse of drugs. And sometimes when we're taking a history, we forget to ask about these things. There are certain um, inhalants, sometimes called poppers, Yohimbin or Yocon. This can be found not only in a prescription drug, but it's also found in health stores, in certain tonics and elixirs, the pavern, anything else that people believe in as a performance enhancer, as some type of aphrodisiac. And of course, there are all these physical manifestations. Notice the unwanted surgeries, the ways in which... Uh, as I began to get a little bit on the bald side, I thought about having a hair transplant. You know, maybe I should join the men, hair club for men, be one of the members. The ways in which we think about other types of cosmetic surgery to look good, to enhance our appeal. As you work with people, you'll be surprised at the number of, that will tell you they've had sur surgeries that later on they wish they hadn't had and that they were sexually motivated. And we'll find certain types of behaviors will fall into categories. Carnes, in his classic work, talked about ten categories. What I've done is rearrange these for you to look at them in two areas. One is what I call non-paraphilic, the areas that are not associated with object love or love of other. 
Paraphilia is a nice name for sexual deviancies as well. These are the behaviors that we don't associate with violations of others directly. They include fantasy, which is the primary part of addictive sexual disorders, the use of seduction and the roles of seduction, having sex anonymously, in which I believe there are victims, certainly prostitutes and others that offer their services are victims on a level, and certainly we're a victim when we become the consumer, but that's not a direct victimization. Uh, and then finally, there's the trading of sex, whether it's drugs for sex, medical services for sex, you name it, people have traded it. The other side of this coin are the paraphilic manifestations. These are the things that we commonly associate with uh, taboos of one kind or another. These are things that as a society, despite our cultural backgrounds and our personal beliefs about what's healthy and unhealthy in terms of sexuality, we think these things aren't okay. They're wrong. And they go from voyeurism, the ways in which we get thrills out of watching other people talk about or perform sexually, to exhibitionism, where we get a joy out of looking good, uh, looking cool, uh, showing our stuff, which doesn't necessarily mean showing our genitals. It's just a way of being, being out there, showing that we're available. To intrusive sex, which can be anything from fraudulism, uh, which is characterized by the, uh, the dirty old man in the elevator, to other types of unwelcome or unwanted touch, which can occur in a variety of different ways, even in medical practice, to frank assault or in pain exchange, which is one of the most difficult and the most consuming types of addictive passion that can occur. When one person hurts another, another person feels the victim, but in one way or another there's an exchange of pain back and forth. There's a way in which we play that out. And then finally there's exploitive sex in all of its manifestations, whether that's in a medical practice, sex with children, or others. Please recognize that not all these things are addictive. These are behavior types. They may or may not be associated with the features that we think of and identify with addiction. Those disorders that are addictive, in my experience, fall into three major categories. And these are the diagnostic categories that are helpful there. They can be a sexual disorder NOS. And if you look in the DSM-IV, you'll see it's a pretty generic description. But it fits along the area of, uh, of certain behaviors that are unmanageable and the sexual disorder has addictive features. The second one that I have down here is paraphilia. It could be one of the specific paraphilias in the DSM-IV, or it can be paraphilia NOS, which is a combination of behaviors that has addictive features. Now, it may also have features of exploitation, intrusion. Uh, it may have features of uh, romanticism, seduction, whatever feels right as descriptors. But you have to describe the disorder for what it is, because we have not develop the nomenclature and the diagnostic criteria well enough to do it otherwise. And finally, there's the category of impulse control disorder. I put up a slide on the definition of impulse control disorder because I thought it was helpful for you to look it over. Look at how there are features of impulse control disorder that at times feel like addiction. Not all impulse control disorders are addiction. Compulsive gambling can be addictive in nature. It can have a rush. It's another one of those so-called processes that can feel like addiction at times. There are other types of impulse control disorders, such as pulling out your hair, that don't feel like addiction at all. And I don't suffer from that disorder, by the way. I, I have problems, but that's not one of them. 
but the point here is that you can experience pleasure and gratification, there's anxiety and there's relief. And that these features of an impulse control disorder can be addictive in some ways. And certain sexual behaviors can be uh, impulse control disorders. When you're looking at excessive sexual behavior, it's important to realize that there are certain uh, sexual disorders, there are certain problems that have addictive features. And this is an acceptable and appropriate way to describe them. So what I've done for you here is I've given you a differential diagnosis. You can look at the top three, which I associated with sexual addiction features. And then you can look at other disorders that can be associated with excesses in sexual behavior. They're not sexual addictions. The mental illness, the mental disorder is primary. The sexual behavior is secondary. Just to go through this briefly, notice that there are, that in the manic phase of a bipolar disorder, there can be problems. That this can be a manifestation of traumatic stress. That this can be part of an adjustment disorder with disturbance of mood and a disturbance of conduct. That there are uncommon manifestations and uncommon diagnoses that you might not always think of. That certain substances can induce a manic or a hypomanic state. They can induce a state of, of vulnerability and availability to sexual behavior that they normally wouldn't use. The most prominent example from my practice I'd give you is a certain physician who was put on high doses of steroids and got involved in some inappropriate and illegal sexual behavior while he was on high doses of steroids. When he went off the steroids, the behavior went away. He wasn't a sex addict. He didn't have a paraphilia. There are certain dissociative disorders that need to be understood in which the dissociation can blur reality and fantasy. And people may not remember what they actually did as opposed to what they fear they did, such as also the case with obsessive compulsive disorder. And certainly um, one of the uh, unusual ones mm. is uh, the difficulties that people get into um, <clears throat> around uh, erotomania. They feel like they have a sexual relationship with someone and it's a movie star or someone that they've never even met. That's the extreme of uh, a fantasy becoming a, uh, a compulsive driving force in your life. And at the bottom, of course, there's delirium, dementia, other types of disorders where we can't remember. As if that isn't complicated enough, we need to look at it from a different way. And that is that sometimes there is a primary sexual disorder with addictive features or without addictive features, and there are secondary manifestations associated with that that have to be dealt with. A large number of people that come to my practice that have problems with their conduct, whether it's outrageous uh, behavior in terms of um, verbal excesses and uh, being rude and obnoxious, or whether it has to do with sexual indiscretions, at least a third of the people in, in my practice of formal assessments are chemically dependent. They have another diagnosis that was missed. Other diagnoses that I ask you to consider in people that come forward with these types of symptoms are depression, traumatic stress, dissociation, uh, anxiety disorders, and recognize that a number of these people are very self-destructive, even to the point of being so ashamed of what they've done that they might be thinking about harming themselves. And so there's this intertwining linkage. If you can think of it in terms of circles, that overlap on each other. You have to sort out what's primary, what's secondary. 
and you have to let the patient help you to understand what needs to be treated. In this room, we know that if a person's using, they have to be free of substances before they can deal with these other problems. First things first. But I can also tell you from experience that if we don't deal with these, we will find ourselves using again. And we'll find ourselves looking back at the area in the big book that reminds us of that. We have to sort it out. And we have to realize that there's a linkage here between certain phenomena, between what I'm calling now sexual addictive disorders, between victimization, between ways in which there is exploitation that has occurred, and between the ways in which we can actually become the victimizers. There's a link between victimization and becoming a victimizer in one way or another. Cycles of anger. Cycles of violence. Cycles of pain. And so, getting back to the big book, in one way or another, we try to shape some type of sane way of approaching all this. And the guideline is to subject each relation we have to the test. Is it selfish or not? We ask for spiritual assistance. This is more powerful than we are. It brings us back to the second step. And we also ask to come up with some understanding of what this desire is about and what our ideals ought to be. And a hope that we can grow along spiritual lines. In keeping with my promise to you to look at this from the inside out, I want to ask you for a couple minutes now to think about the nature of desire with me. It's interesting how, as we talk about desire, whether this fits for sexual behavior, desire for food, desire for power, desire for drugs, it all has a common denominator. I'm asking you to look at desire as a complex of likes and dislikes, ways in which we approach the world, and that this is an inherent part of our personality. We wouldn't be without desire. We respond or react to a desire complex with condition and pattern perceptions and with judgment. We either approve or disapprove. We like, we don't like. It's hard to be neutral about desire. And desire, for a large part, is unconscious. It happens. Desire happens in our lives, even as we're sitting there. Some of us want a second cup of coffee. Some of us are restless. Some of us want to get up. Some of us want to go to sleep. Some of us want to go play golf. It's hard to keep the mind focused on here because of desire. But we don't think about the desire. We just think about the object of the desire. When you really focus on desire for a period of time, you, you begin to realize that so much of what we are is desire. And that desire is part of the human condition. It's neither good nor bad. It is. It's painful. It hurts at times. And the struggle with desire is no matter what we do, no matter how we approach it, no matter what we do with it as we direct ourselves and our attention towards a given object, even when we obtain that object, the pleasure, the gratification we get is only temporary. It only lasts for a brief period of time. And then it's gone. And somehow the mind goes on to some other desire. As if the mind keeps saying to us, I want it, I want it, I want it. 
But at the same time, there's part of us that realizes, I don't have it. I don't have it. I might not ever get it. I got it for a moment. I lost it. I want something else. We become consumed by the process of desire. And when compulsive thought revolves around any given desire, we find ourselves experience what we call, in our jargon, craving. And that craving can take a number of different forms. It often uh, revolves around some type of ritualized behavior, whatever it might be. Example for me would be uh, dealing with ice cream. If I've had a bad day, and I know there's ice cream in the freezer, I have a little ritual around this. I think about the ice cream. I want the ice cream. I tell myself it's bad. I go through this pro and con of it. I think about all the calories and all the fat. And I tell myself I shouldn't do it. And then finally there's this moment. The freezer door opens. <laughs> it's all over. And then I sit in my own way and I enjoy this. And then afterwards what happens? I got the gratification for a moment. But then I feel bad, right? I wouldn't have done that if I were you. And instead of enjoying that and letting the experience be, I have to deal with the guilt, the shame, the question about my activity. So it's that appeasement and the associations around that that form part of that desire complex. In lots of ways, we've come to realize that we're not helpless, we're powerless. We're not helpless, we're addicted. And this is a way to look from, not from the neurobiochemistry, but from the inside out, at how the neurobiochemistry plays out in us through the desire complexes, through that pleasure center. And the principles of our program say that we become imprisoned by desire. Not only by what we want, but by what we have. Because when we have certain things, when we own things, we're still prisoners of those. I have a watch. It's a nice watch. It's got good memories. My wife gave me this watch. There's a lot of emotion associated with this. But now that I have this watch, there's a responsibility that goes with this watch. When I take it off and I'm speaking, I have to remember to pick it up. If I lose this watch, my wife would not be happy. I wouldn't be happy. <laughs> I would miss it. And so there's a certain responsibility. There are certain ways in which the attachment to this watch continues even after I've had the pleasure of receiving it as a gift. There comes a time when, when, if we will look critically at desire, if we'll come to desire with mindfulness, we'll come to believe, and through that investigation, that these passing moments of sensory uh, attachment will come and go for our whole lives, but underneath that, there must be more. Underneath that, there must be a drive to awaken spiritually if we're to be free of craving. If we had the time today, I would have each of us sit and just work with desire for a few minutes and watch desire play out in the mind. And if you did this for a little bit of time, I'll tell you from my own experience, you might notice some of these things. You might notice that when desire forms in the mind and you really think about desire for a period of time, you'll notice how it inspires, it brings forward an intention, 
of some kind or another. You look at your coffee cup. It's empty. This guy's been talking for 40 minutes now. I'd like to have another cup of coffee. I intend on going out and getting a cup of coffee as soon as he stops talking. Whatever the case might be, there's an intention involved. And that the, the awareness of the desire and the ability to perceive and mindfully approach the intention gives us an opportunity to choose or not choose action. Now, this is not Nancy Reagan saying just say no, okay? This is ourselves looking at ourselves, working playfully and non-judgmentally with the process of desire and intention. Second of all, our memory of past experiences reinforces certain inclinations and patterns, certain behavioral rituals. As we move toward an object, we attempt to possess or to control. We can look at our motives, and the motives are crucial. When we begin to see our motives, when we begin to look at them and investigate them, we understand ourselves better, and we have the ability to choose. We see how when we go for desire, our mood begins to change. And then in my example about the ice cream, it's not so important that I not eat the ice cream. It's that I be aware that my mood changes when I experience that gratification. And that if I'm going to eat ice cream, I might as well enjoy it. I might as well just go ahead and enjoy it for what it is. And that when there are certain types of gratification that don't feel right, I might as well be mindful that they don't feel right. That they're hurting me or they're hurting another person. Or they're taking away from something that is more important in my life. And finally, these patterns of craving create suffering. And that we will never be able to control certain objects of desire, no matter what we do. Looking at this a bit further now, we have to look at the intention, because the intention is the weak link of this chain. We have the desire, and you inspire a certain intention. The intention is for safety, for relief, for reward, for being good, for wanting to appear good to another person, for appearing sexual, for wanting that person to be sexual with us, an object of desire. And that frustration of that leads to resentment. But when we look at the intention and our motives and what we're doing, this is the heart of inventory. This is the heart of the fourth step. This is why so much of this work brings us back to the sixth and seventh step. Because there are defects in character that we have to identify consciously in order to offer up humbly. So that we can experience that aw spiritual awakening and that miracle of change. We are also caught up with what I refer to here as averse desire. In other words, there are certain people, places, and things that we want to avoid or we want to do away with. We don't like them. We don't like what they stand for. We don't like the way they make us feel. And that these averse attachments are just as powerful and often more subtle than the obvious attachments of desire. These two are a substantial and important part of the inventory we need to take on ourselves. From my own investigation, from the teachers that I've had, I offer you these lessons of experience about desire, how it relates both to sexuality and other parts of our lives. That desire is often uninvited. It's often quite compulsive in my life. I have struggles with those compulsive desires. 
and I have, I have difficulty working with these mindfully and giving mercy to myself, being playful with this, accepting desire as a given. I have trouble with that voice, that voice that says, I want to have the ice cream. I wouldn't do that if I were you. And how that voice and that intention is a good way for me to mindfully explore that desire and understand what it's about. And I also have learned that out of dissatisfaction, out of the frustration of desire comes a lot of my resentment. And that sometimes instead of just mindlessly trying to will my way out of resentments, I need to mind fully and with mercy towards myself and others, explore those resentments and understand the desire and the intention that's underneath them. Finally, <clears throat> there's a strategy that we can use here with desire, if we investigate it mindfully, that allows us to move on. Because when you get down to it, it's not desire that's the cause of our pain, but it's the identification with desire. Our belief that it's our fate, our destiny, that there's no escape, that we're prisoners of desire. When we see desire as my desire, when we see it as my suffering, my pain, we're identifying with the I part of I am, and we're forgetting the part of us that's a spiritual being. When we're able to separate from the desire and see it as the desire, the pain, the object, not my object, the object, it's a crucial but very important distinction. And that's when, what this mindful approach to inventory can bring us. is to realize that we are more than our thoughts. We are more than our feelings. We are certainly more than our desires. And that that's part of the path of spiritual awakening. As we go through this inventory, we wonder. Suppose we fall short. Suppose it doesn't happen the way we'd like. Are we going to get drunk? It depends on ourselves and our motives. Are we being selfish? Are we not? Are we going to talk about it? Are we going to hold it within? If our conduct continues to harm others, in one way or another, it's going to come back to us. It's spiritual law. It's a spiritual reality that will come back to us in one way or another. We're not theorizing here. This is fact. The last point that I want to try to bring home to you is the confusion and the difficulty that occurs around this particular passage in the chapter of the family, page 124 and 125 of the big book, around misdeeds. It's very important to recognize that it's so easy to bring this up to another person, that part of that pain exchange I talked about earlier is kicking these misdeeds around in one way or another. I like the uh, idea of casting the ashes about because it dirties up our current house. We can't clean the house when we're casting ashes about. And what happens when we do that is in families where there's exploitation, there's pain, there's sexual addiction, and this happens in codependency as well as dependency and co-addiction. It reproduces emotional incest, the ways in which we were caught up in becoming too old too fast. When we were mommy's little boy, daddy's little girl, and tried to grow up oh so fast and take on all those adult things before we were ready. This is the essence of the inner child work, is being gentle and compassionate with ourselves and letting us feel the things that we've repressed in ways that don't harm others. 
in ways where we don't have to cash those ashes about. In ways in which we don't have to run from our objects of desire. This is a quote from a, from the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu tradition, that talks about that same kind of thing we were talking about in terms of objects, desires, and, uh, and inventory, to show that this is thousands of years old dealing with this. But the spiritual awakening, when we awaken spiritually, that's the goal. And in some ways I'm preaching to the choir because we have spirituality here in this meeting, going to the newcomer's banquet last night, watching the faith, feeling that spirituality in where we are, seeing people that have spiritual hunger. And so what I offer today is a small thing, but an interesting twist on this. If you're willing to mindfully explore desire with compassion, with non-judgmental awareness, when you're willing to look at this for yourself, you can do something which you wouldn't think of, and that is use desire for God as a second-order way of accomplishing spiritual awakening. We will have desire. Desire for heroin, desire for cocaine, desire for Jim Beam, desire for God. If we are to have desire, let us have the latter. Let's use desire to move beyond desire. Difficult, but skillful if we can accomplish it. To sum up, we have to pray for the right ideal. We have to find this in our own way. We have to throw ourselves into helping others and get out of the self-centeredness around this. It can be done if we're willing to allow ourselves to embark on this journey, realizing that we can't solve it all. We can't do it all. And finally, as one investigation of desire is a book that you'll find in the bookstore called Embracing the Beloved by Stephen and Andrea Levine. Stephen's a recovering heroin addict. Now, if you read Stephen's stuff, you won't know that. But I can tell you that he is. He wouldn't mind. And that this heroin addict has looked at desire from a lot of ways. And he's looked at this in terms of relationship. And his latest book is really a study of that. And I thank him for teaching me about some of these things. And I like the way that he talks about it here. And how desire and working with desire can become part of relationship. Part of compassionate service. And as those that offer help and healing to others in the medical profession, the dental profession, all the helping professions, we have the ability, as we grow, to pass it on to others. Thank you.